kids ages three to pre-K can head down Holy Cross Kids Worship with uh, Mrs. Gilmart and Mrs. Kilberger. The rest of you, turn in your Bibles if you have them with you to Luke chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it's the third book of the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's alright. It's printed for you in your order of worship, in your bulletin. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, as always, there are a few on the back table we'd love for you to take with you. I know it might be a little awkward getting up right now, so you can get it at the end, but uh, please take one of those. It's our gift to you. I said earlier in the service that we are in our, the second week of our Advent series um, and our, our, the celebration of Advent here. This is a, this is a season in which, the, as the Christian church, we, um, we look for and look ahead to the consolation of the world, which is the second coming of Jesus. While at the same time, while we're looking ahead, we look back to his coming as a baby in a forgotten cave in a backwater town of an apparently forsaken people. Right? And as we lean into Christmas this year, we're using four songs, four songs that are recorded in Luke's gospel, written down for us. Um, they, are, they are redemption songs. They are songs sung by people with deep longings. Those longings now coming into fruition. Uh, they are songs sung in eager anticipation with great joy and with steady hope. They are songs that our world desperately needs to hear today, and they are songs that we need to hear today. So that's why we're looking at them. Last week we looked at the first of these. Right? That was Mary's song, what is traditionally called the Magnificat. As we looked at that, we saw a, a, a young girl celebrating this incredible work of God uh, to fulfill His promises to His people and to look with favor on the lowly, on the needy. That would be her, right? Among others. This week we turn to the song of an old man who has spent nine months unable to speak, who was slow to believe that the prayers that he prayed as a priest, namely that God would actually come and forgive his people's sin, that, that God would actually come and fulfill his promises, that he was slow to believe that those were actually coming to pass, and now he bursts into song, a song that echoes with others in Scripture and, and his own deep-seated expectations. So if you have your place in Luke chapter 1, if you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading... Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. This is God's word, friends. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of, of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we live in a world in which these words are just hard to believe. They were sung 2,000 years ago about an event that was happening right then, and yet today we are met in the papers with headlines that we cannot fathom, 
with word from family members of children that are sick, of weakness and, and devastation in our own bodies, brokenness in our own families, betrayals on the right and on the left. And so, Lord, that experience that we had today, as we got up and came into this place, was not foreign to this man who's singing this. And so we pray that you would help us have the eyes of faith to see what he saw, the ears of faith to hear what he would tell us, what you would tell us, and the heart of faith to receive the same Savior that he joyously received himself. God, would you, would you answer in your mercy and hear our prayers we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have a seat. Some of you here um, are, ble- are the kind of people that are blessed to have uh, relationships, uh, friendships, you know, that you, you share huge amounts of history with. You know, that uh, you, you have tons of, of backstory, uh, tons of laughs that you've shared together, tears. Maybe for others of you, it's not necessarily friends so much as it's family. But you know that experience, right, where you're sitting in a group of people and somebody can just say, like, part of a phrase. And all of a sudden, the whole room bursts out in laughter or, or uh, you know, starts their eyes well up. Like, it, it's with a simple word or a simple phrase, an entire event, a mishap, or, or maybe even a terrible moment suddenly comes to mind and everyone in the room understands it. I can tell you from, an, from experience that being an outsider in those moments is incredibly confusing. And that is how I think many of us feel when we come into this song, into, into reading these kind of words, because like those moments, it seems to share a kind of grammar, uh, a kind of even language that we just don't get. It, 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 you know that it must make sense to somebody, but it doesn't seem to make sense to us. It seems all very meaningful, but we're just not sure how. Something amazing is happening here in this story, but we miss it because most of us don't share the, the cultural story, the, the communal history, the, 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 all of, all of the, the narrative that kind of comes into these phrases. These phrases are sung with such passion and joy, and yet it kind of just sounds wordy and religious to us, right? Our song this morning is sung by a religious professional. I know we hate that language. It's true. That, that, that's how he made his living. He was a priest. He, he was a religious professional. He spent his life praying for something that he believed God could do. Believed even, in fact, that he would do. He just wouldn't know. He didn't know when. And now it has come. And all the meaning of it comes forward as a long awaited song. So we're going to be looking at this text in three ways this morning. There's an outline, as always, in your bulletin, if that's helpful. If you're a note taker, some of you are. Some of you are more like stenographers, and we love you for it, because it's helpful for the rest of us. Others of us just kind of sit, and that's cool too. Uh, But we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at singing our longings, we're going to look at preparing the way, and then finally, we're going to look at the longing that remains. Okay, Singing our longings, preparing the way, and the longing that remains. Let's start by looking at singing our longings. Now let me give you some context here really quick. The dude who's singing this song is a guy by the name of Zechariah. Okay? Uh, you, you'd love him. 
Zechariah is the older cousin of Mary, and we were told earlier in this passage, if you, if you kind of backed up a little bit, that he is a priest, and that while he was at the temple praying, as was his normal rotation, priests in Israel kind of worked on a rotation, uh, and he went into his assigned duties, and he's there, he's doing something at the altar of incense, and he begins praying, he's, he's praying for the things that he would always pray as he came to that place, as every priest prayed when they came to that place. For the redemption of God's people. And as he did this, an angel appears to him. Second time this happened in this book, something must be going on, right? An angel appears to him and says that his prayers were heard and that God was moving. And the angel also said that in the midst of this, your prayers have been heard. And by the way, oh by the way, your wife, Elizabeth, who's like way old, is and childless, by the way, never had kids... Your wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby who's going to prepare the way for the Lord and that you should name him John, okay? Now, if, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, that kind of story should sound really familiar. Because for some reason, God seems really into coming into the life of old folks and helping them have babies. Like, he just, boom, shows up and they've been childless and boom, now you're going to have a kid. It's like, he, he does this over and over and over again. Uh, it, it's a fairly consistent theme in the Bible. So, Zechariah who's, you know, been praying, doing this thing, completely nonplussed by the fact that there's an angel standing in front of him telling him all this is going to happen, right? Completely nonplussed by this. He's like, yeah, I don't think so, right? I mean, I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about the audacity. There's an angel. You're sitting there praying and suddenly, poof, like angel of light, glory. Everyone who sees an angel in the Bible generally gets really scared, Right? You see it in the, in the last book of the Bible, in, in Revelation, when, when people see these, these guys, they get scared, they fall down. It's generally terrifying. And so he sees this angel, and the angel's like, God's heard your prayer, and your wife's going to have a baby. And you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't see that as happening. So the angel answers him with, the, you know, I think, um, being translated. If you were to see it in the original, the way it would look like is this. Really? Like, that, that's what he says in the... Not, no, not really. But it's, it's, it's what he's saying. He's like, okay, really? Okay, you don't believe me. All right, well, here's, here's the deal. Uh, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months. <laughs> you know, it, you're done. Until your son John is born. Just so you get that it's going to happen. So Zechariah leaves the temple. He leaves the place. And he's trying to tell people what happened. He can't do anything. He's like, you know, and nothing's happening. Nothing's coming out. And so for nine months, he's speechless. Why don't you imagine what it would be like to not be able to talk for nine months? It gives you some time to reflect, right? So he he's spent some time reflecting on what's happened. And when John is born, he can suddenly speak again. He starts singing the song, okay? Now that we've set the stage, let's look at verse 68 really quick. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, stop there. If, if you were here last week, you heard me say over and over that Mary's song, the one that we looked at last week, comes just a few verses before this was filled with the language of the Bible. This one is too. In fact, I think one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to grasp is because this language isn't very familiar to us. So let me help a little. If you were a Jew in the first century, the ultimate salvific event, and by salvific I mean the thing that, that brought salvation, brings salvation, the event for you was the exodus. Okay, maybe that's uh, not familiar to you. Uh, the story basically works like this. Humanity had fallen into a state that the Bible calls sin. It's a state of independence from God. Okay, just cutting yourself off, independence from God, and it's a state that leads to judgment. 
God promised to rescue us from our sin, to to actually save us from the judgment that is due for betraying him and from the ways that we have broken the world. He's going to save us from both. And he begins to work that out through the family of this guy named Abraham. And Abraham's family, through through a series of events, ends up in Egypt. They they started in in this land that God had promised. Uh, It was a small group, and they end up in Egypt where they grow and over 400 years become a great people. And eventually, the Egyptians bring them into slavery. And like I said, they were enslaved for 400 years. But God comes to rescue them from their slavery through this dude named Moses. Okay, Maybe maybe his name is a little more familiar to you. And so, through the midst of this story with Moses, you've got got ten plagues. You've got a Passover. You've got the the parting of the Red Sea, a Charlton Heston movie, like it's awesome. All of this happens. Uh, and and, And then God comes to rescue his people from Egypt. When he does so, the words that are used to talk about his rescue of his people from Egypt is that he's coming to visit them and to redeem them. He's coming to visit them and redeem them. They are slaves. He's coming to redeem them out of their slavery, and he's coming to visit them, which when they say visit, it doesn't mean for tea and crumpets. It doesn't mean for a barbecue. It means he's coming in power to rescue them, okay? And so all of that language that's listed here in this song in verses 72 to 75 is all Exodus language. It's all language, if you were a Jew in the first century, it would have made your mind go immediately to the Exodus. It's looking back to... to, uh, to uh, the, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 15, and all the promises that God makes to Abraham's family. He's going to bring them out of bondage and into the land they were made for. The question is why? Like, why, why is he singing about something that happened so long ago? What's the point now? Simply this. It's because that exodus, that exodus, wasn't the only one God's people were looking for. Because you see, God God promised to save save the world through Abraham's family. To rescue the world from our sin. To rescue from the evil that had kind of of encapsulated us and and, and enslaved us. He he promised to save the world through Abraham's family. But the problem, as many of you have heard me say over and over and over again, was that Abraham's family was just as messed up as everybody else. Drowning people can't save other drowning people. And so God gives Abraham's family this law, this perfect reflection of what we were made to be as humans, and they can't keep it. And the law itself says, look, if you can't keep it, where you're going to end up is in this thing called exile. A kind of replay of what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. And this is exactly what happened. Right when Zechariah is speaking, God's people consider themselves, see themselves, understand themselves to still be in exile because of their sin. They're longing for the day when God would come and deal with their sin and fulfill his promise to make things right. And the Old Testament had said over and over again that when he did so, when he actually came to finally fulfill his promises, it would be like an exodus, a second exodus, a new exodus. So let me make this clear. If Zechariah is speaking about an exodus, if he's speaking about God coming to visit and redeem his people so that we could worship him without fear, holy and righteous all the days of our lives, it is because he is saying that God is finally coming to right the world. God is finally coming to deal with our sin. God is finally coming to fulfill the promises he made as he stood looking at two people in their nakedness and a snake on the ground. 
He's finally coming to deal with it. That is in all, though. Look down at verses 69 to 71. We see also a longing for salvation. Now, I say salvation, and we aren't exactly certain what that means. I think most of us are like, salvation, I, I mean, I think I may have some clue. If we have any idea, it probably has to do with something very otherworldly, right? Well, not in the Old Testament, and certainly not in Zechariah's mind. See, he talks about raising up a horn of salvation. That's very odd. <laughs> okay, what, what is a horn of salvation? Well, a horn... Um, now, this, this horn, even as he speaks of it, comes out of the, the house of David. In the ancient Near East, where, you know, that's, that's where Zechariah lives. In the ancient Near East, a horn is a symbol of strength. It's this mighty, strong person. And it comes out of this house of David. Now, if you aren't familiar with David, um, you probably are. You probably may just not know it. We're talking like David and Goliath. Like, little dude, five stones, kills the giant, okay? Um, David is kind of the archetype in the Bible of a good king. And so basically, Zechariah is saying that God has raised up for them a king, a new king. Here's why this matters. As things got worse and worse and worse uh, for Israel, and the people strayed further and further from God, the prophets told of this exile, right? We we just talked about that. This exile. And not just the exile, but the hope for return, that they're going to come back. And this hope was bound up in a few promises. One was what we already just talked about. God was finally going to come to deal with our sin. Another was, was the casting down of the powers of evil in the world. You know of these, right? Like I said, we, we, we've been seeing them. Like, they seem constant in the news today. Like the casting off of the powers of evil in the world and the establishment of peace. A third was the presence of God returning through a new temple. In other words, God coming to dwell with us. God dwelling in our midst again. And all of this was wrapped up and brought together by the promise of a king who would come to accomplish these things, who came out of David's line and bring a reign of justice with him. And this is important for us to understand because the Bible, apart from popular belief, does not offer us a pie-in-the-sky hope. The Bible doesn't offer us escape from the world as it is. The Bible offers us a hope for a transformed world. But at the same time, it is brutally honest about the depth of the problem. It isn't just the individual who is broken, right? That's where we can get if we think that the only problem in the world is our individual sin. The problem is like our individual brokenness. But but it's not just the individual. Evil is loosed upon the world. And the hope of Zechariah, the the hope that he's singing about, is this longing of, of a wise and just king coming to set the world's to rights. And the amazing thing is, At the point that he's singing this, he's saying this has already happened. That's bizarre. Like he's saying that this has already happened. Every every verb uh, in the original in the in the Greek. This was written in Greek. Every verb in the original is in a a particular form that states an action that has already happened in the past. It's already done. It's already taken place. What Zechariah has longed for, he says, has already come. So that's what it means to be singing our longings. But then we look at preparing the way. Because if you notice, a corner is turned in verse 76, is it not? Because he looks from what is currently happening to this this kind of preparation that's about to come about. Look at verse 76. See, up to this point, we may have been confused. And I think the whole story of Zechariah can be confusing if we don't understand what's going on. Because you see him praying in the temple, and the angel shows up and says, Hey, uh, your your prayers have been heard, uh, and you're going to have a baby. And we think... Was he praying for a baby? Like, 
No. Zechariah was an old dude, okay? Well, we're, we're talking like, he is well past retirement age. I know of very few retirees who are praying, can I please have a newborn? Please? Right? Uh, it doesn't, doesn't often, that's not what he was praying for. He was doing what priests always did there, which was to pray for the salvation of the world, the redemption of God to come. And so we can be confused when he starts talking about God coming to set his people free and to raise up a mighty horn of salvation through, through uh, the house of David. Is he talking about his son who was just born or someone else? And he answers it here. Because he says that John, he says, you child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. He is going to come and prepare the way. And this matters because Zechariah, as he says this, is joining together a couple of more hopes from the Old Testament. I know this is probably getting a little teachy for most of us, okay? Just stay with me. Because a lot of this doesn't make sense unless we get all of these these echoes from Scripture. In, In the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, there'd be a guy named Malachi. God tells us that before he comes to make things right, before he comes suddenly to his temple, he is going to send before him a prophet, reminiscent of another prophet named Elijah, who will turn people's hearts back to God. And then, even before that, in the, the, one of the most famous chapters of the most famous of the prophets, a guy by, by the name of Isaiah, in chapter 40, God tells that when he will come to redeem the world, when he will come to bring his people back from their long exile that began in the garden, that someone who would come first, who would, quote, prepare the way of the Lord to make a way in the wilderness for God's people to come home. So listen, if you are a first century Jew steeped in the Old Testament, you cannot say things any clearer. Zechariah is saying that God's rescue plan is finally coming to fruition. God is coming to finally do what he promised in the garden, what he promised to Abraham, what he promised to Moses, what he promised to David. He is coming to save us from our sin. That is what Zechariah means when he says that his son will prepare the way for God's rescue by letting them know about, uh, know that their salvation will come because God is about to finally and fully forgive sins. That little baby that he was holding was there to come and prepare the way for someone else. But listen, that that may sound great to some of us here, but that is not the entirety of the hopes of the Bible. See, the reason that other components of the Bible's hope don't often resonate with us, I think, is because we live in the West. We live in a relatively wealthy and a relatively self-sufficient society, but Zechariah didn't. He was an occupied person amongst an occupied people. He lived in an occupied nation where the occupying force could do whatever they wanted to you and to your family with no recourse, and often did. They lived believing in a a God who was the only God while all the time living under the reign of a dude who called himself God and asked you to, to offer sacrifice to him. See, for most of us, evil is an idea that we see on TV. And we're really surprised when we're faced with it. Shocked. How could such a thing be? For Zechariah, it was part of his reality day to day. That's why he speaks of those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's not an abstraction for him. That's reality. That's every day. He's talking about a world in chaos. A broken world in which evil often seems to reign. 
And obviously that's pointed out the most when he talks about the shadow of death, right? I mean, most of us know intuitively that death doesn't belong here, right? The Bible affirms that intuition, by the way. We like to say, especially in America, we love to tell ourselves that death is a part of life. It helps to help us to not think about how awful it is. It is not. Death is an intruder. It was never meant to be here. Death has come, the Bible tells us, because of sin. It's not a part of God's good creation. It is a result of our betrayal of God. And death is now the most powerful weapon of evil. And so to talk about those who sit in darkness and under the constant shadow of death is to speak of victims of evil and injustice and oppression. And Zechariah's message is not just, hey, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. It's that the dawn from on high is breaking to shine light on those who are in darkness, to to dispel the shadow of that death, to, to get rid of it. Now, most scholars believe that when it talks about dawn there, or, or as the ESV says, to, to, give light to, the, to give light to those who sh- sit in darkness, uh, the sunrise from on high, uh, that, that word sunrise, actually dawn is a better translation. And most scholars will believe that's not like an impersonal thing, like, oh, the, the dawn is, is getting ready to break, but like a person. Someone from on high is coming to bring light. It's kind of a title. He's coming to bring light to darkness and to bring peace. Now, next week, we're going to look more closely at what the Bible means when it talks about peace, right? Because we're going to look at the Song of the Angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Right? We're going to look specifically at that. But suffice it to say here that it means a state of wholeness. Evil and darkness are going away because someone is coming to deal with them. To take them away. All of God's promises Zechariah sings for us are now coming true. So like last week, what I want to do now, if we can, is help us engage in this song. Because here's the reality. We can hear these things and think that they have very little to do with us. Because I don't know about you. My guess is you're like me. You're not sitting around waiting for a king. Right? We're Americans. We don't like kings. Right? We're not not looking for a king. And we certainly are not looking for any kind of exodus. But let's not miss the forest through the trees, because you see, the story of the Bible is that these promises that God promised to his people, the, the things that he promised to fix, right? They're not Jewish problems. They're not ancient problems. They're human ones. So let's look at first what it means to seek deliverance as we look at the longing that remains, okay? When Zechariah talked about an exodus, what he was talking about was the forgiveness of sins, okay? Now, I say that, and a lot of us check out, right? We check out either because we, we hate sin talk. I hate when preachers talk about this. Like, or, or we don't think we have a sin problem. Uh, but, but I would ask just, if you can, just try and stay with me. Because I think it, it, maybe we'll talk about it a little differently. Uh, and I, I would beg to differ on, on the fact that you don't think you have a sin problem. See, our culture has been trying for the better part of 100 years to find some way, some way to remove these innate feelings of guilt that many of us walk around with. Everyone from Freud to Oprah has sought to make us believe that guilt isn't real. That there's nothing really holding us accountable. Uh, that, That what we need to do is cast off these feelings. Get rid of these feelings of, of guilt that are repressing our humanness. Right? If we get rid of those, we can be most thoroughly human. 
Let me ask, because some of us in this room are like, yeah, I, yeah. How's that working? Like, seriously. How, how's that working? You realize we are the most medicated people ever. I wonder why. We try to deny our responsibility, but we know better. But some of us, look, some of us deal with that, deal with those feelings. We, we don't know how to get rid of them, so we just deal with them. And we deal with them by living into them, right? Some of us in this room, we just live into that stuff. We, we say, look, I know I'm messed up, and you are too, and at least I'm being honest about it. Right? We, we feel shame, uh, but, but we simply try and distract ourselves from it. Yeah, yeah, I got this shame thing, but I'm just, you know what? We, we distract ourselves with, with drink, with, with sex, with money, what, whatever. It's like, I just, if I get more, I won't think about it, and I'll be all good. Others of us, though, we deny it by working hard morally. And even, look, some of you are in here, and that's where you are, and you came in here looking really neat and tidy, and your life is, looks really great. But you know you're a mess, right? I mean, you're not a fool. The fact that we know that we're messed up, is that, that's why we get so threatened by those who are better than us. Right? Why do you think it is that you get threatened? If, 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 if you find yourself like, yeah, I, I take pride in the fact that I am a very moral, upright person. Why do you think you get threatened when you see someone who's more so than you? Has their life together better than you do? Doesn't quite swear as much as you do. Never touches the body. Like that kind of thing. Like we, why is it that you get threatened? Why do you think you get threatened if, 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 if it's not so much morality as it is social conscience? Why do you think it is that you get threatened when you see someone who has a bigger social conscience than you? They don't just like write a check. They actually give time. Like they, they went into the Peace Corps. You're like, third world country, mosquito nets. I don't know. But they, they did it. And you're like, ah. and you feel a need to shoot them down. What, what about those? Maybe that's not it at all. Maybe it's just like, yeah. I might not be the most moral person in the world. I may not be the most socially conscious person in the world. But I have a work ethic that can always pass muster. And then you find somebody who just puts in more time than you. Works harder, better, faster than you ever could. And you get threatened. Why? Look, we may try to deny it. Either through distraction or effort. But we know deep down that we don't measure up. We know that something isn't right. The Bible says the reason we feel that way is because we are, in fact, sinners who have, in fact, betrayed God. In other words, we are guilty. We feel that way because it's true. <laughs> it, it actually is the case. And look, you know this. You, you, if, if sin is betraying God, you can't make up for a betrayal. If you cheat on your spouse, no amount of good behavior will ever make that betrayal go away. Ever. You can't. If you're going to be in relationship with a person you've betrayed, it will be because they decide freely to forgive you. And that's what Zechariah is singing about. The Bible is clear that this is our reality. That every human, every human, not just, not just the ones that we look at in the news and see them do bad stuff, but every human, by nature, is a sinner before God. But it's also clear in the Bible that God promised to deal with that, to deal with our sin. Zechariah is singing because God is finally doing that in Jesus. Friends, that is what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God finally coming to do what he promised to do. It's not just about, isn't this great? God gives gifts. It's because God has finally come to visit and redeem us. 
Jesus came to be our forgiveness. God came in the flesh to bear the weight of our betrayal, to bear our guilt before God. Zechariah is singing for the same reason that Christians sing today, because no amount of self-help, no amount of positive thinking, no amount of therapy can deal with the problem of sin. The only thing that can reconcile us to God is the finished work of Jesus. And so let me make this clear. If you are not a Christian this morning, and not everyone in this place is, this is what Christianity is about. This right here. It isn't about better rules for you to keep. It's about a better keeper of the rules who is for you. Jesus didn't come to teach you how to get to God. Jesus came to get you to God. So place your trust in him. And if you are a Christian, listen to me. You and I, listen, we we probably can say at the drop of a hat, Jesus saved me from my sin. But then we go right from saying that to hiding, to justifying ourselves before God because it is so hard to believe. Hear me, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, your sin has been removed from you. Don't take it back. Don't take that shame back. Don't try and add to the finished work of Jesus by your own little self-atonement. You, you're, you're thinking to yourself, Rick, you don't understand. Of course I do. Do you think I'm not jacked up like you are? We could have a contest later if you really want to lay it all out. You come and talk to me, we'll lay it out together. I guarantee I win, okay? I know you don't want anyone to know your darkest secrets. Neither do I, okay? But I am telling you that Jesus is enough. If you are a Christian this morning, you are no longer defined by your failures. You are defined by Jesus' successes. That is the gospel we sing. And so we need to live into that. So that's seeking deliverance. Last, I want to talk about seeking salvation. Because it seems like every day, and look, this week was poignant. Every day it seems like we are met with another story. Like Colorado, like Paris, like San Bernardino, like Kermit Gosnell. We're met with stories of evil running rampant. And it makes us scared, doesn't it? I mean, some of look, look, you can... Puff your chest out with all your machismo. No, I'm fine. Like, come on, man. It scares us. Of course it does. And it scares us because we've lived in a part of the world that has kept these things out of the forefront of our minds. These things don't happen in our safe little cul-de-sac, right? Until they do. And so in our fear, we clamp down. We want it stamped out. So we're going to get rid of it. We can do it. We can eliminate the threat and keep us safe, right? No. You can't. Look, the utopianism of 18th and 19th century Europe failed because you can't educate sin out of people. And the totalitarianism and militaristic vision of Caesar failed because you cannot destroy evil permanently. That longing you have for a land of safety and peace, can I tell you this? It is a good longing. But it can only be found fulfilled in Jesus. 
I know this is hard to truly believe, right? Especially given the stories that we read. But Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, that on the cross, Jesus didn't just atone for sin. He did that. As a matter of fact, that's a central message of the New Testament. But that's not all that happened up there. As Jesus hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, uh, uh, rejected by both, not only did he atone for sin, but he defeated evil. Now you're thinking, Rick, that isn't true. I see the news. I know, but listen. The Apostle Paul said this while living under one of the most wicked regimes that has ever been on the earth. He's not a fool. He wasn't blind. His head would be chopped off just a few years later by that same dude. Okay? Paul lived in a far more vicious, far more evil time. He's not a fool, but he does see the big picture. And he says that Jesus defeated evil by disarming it on the cross. In the ancient church, they would have called this uh, uh, Christ the victor. That this, was, this, what, this is also what was going on on the cross. He defeated evil by disarming it on the cross. And he did that by taking the worst that evil could dish out and then walking away. Can you imagine that? Imagine going into the ring with, with Mike Tyson in his heyday. Okay, not now, because... Dang. All right, but no. In his heyday, you're in the ring with Tyson. Some of you remember this. If not, go YouTube it, because the dude was a monster. And that dude just wails on you with his hardest shot, and you're like, what else? That's what Jesus did. He took the hardest shot that evil could give him, and he absorbed it. And he's like, and? Yeah, I'm done. I'm done here. Are we good? All right, I'm good. All right, I'm going back. I gotta go back with top to Papa, but uh, I'll be back. We're good. So Jesus took the worst that evil could dish out. He bore death, and then he defeated it. Our hope for a world of peace, our hope for a world of safety and security, is not more legislation. It's not closed borders. It's not less guns or more guns, right? Our hope is in a Savior who has already defeated death, who has given us who have faith in Him that same victory, that death cannot permanently touch us, and has promised to come again to be the one to put evil down fully and finally. Now look, that doesn't mean that Christians are all Pollyanna about the world. Like I said, the Bible does both. It speaks in hope, but also in stark reality. But what it does mean is that as a Christian, you need not put your hope in a stronger Caesar. Your, your king has come. He has defeated your greatest enemies. And he will come again. Would you pray with me? Father, I knew this song of longing, of longing for not just forgiveness of sins, but of a world made right. We, we come as people who desperately struggle to believe that that is even possible. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live into that reality. And on the one hand, living into that by, by being open about who we are and rejoicing in who you are. Because your grace is greater than all of our sin. But that we'd also live into it by, by rejecting the claims of the world that the peace that we long for is possible 
in ways apart from Christ. I pray that you would help us to live into that truth by, by, cons- by consistently pushing against the darkness of the world with the gospel of Jesus. Going in, in love and in faith to those that are broken and giving them hope in Christ. By pushing against darkness through ways like foster and orphan care. Through going and pushing against darkness by, by meeting people at the margins and giving the gospel of grace to them. Would you, would you help us to push even in that way against it? And as we do, Lord, we pray that you would release the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that you have told us dwells in us, that you would use that to see the world taste the redemption that is coming. And as we await that day, Lord, would you keep our eyes focused on it, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection that every time we proclaim and confess the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, our hearts might leap in our chests. Because just as surely as that baby was born in that cave, in that forgotten town, and the forsaken people so long ago, so also will he come again and put all things to rights. It's in his name that we pray all this. Amen.